Hello again. Very good to see so many of you here on such a cold wintry night. Um, so two weeks ago, it's the last time we all met. I'll just say a few words about the first two talks to remind you who were here and to tell you about them if you weren't here. I'm only going to say a few words. So we're looking at the fifth chapter of the Sutanipata, and it's called Parayana, which means the way to the beyond. And the fifth chapter, as I said in the first week, is in three sections. There's a um, first section called the Prologue, which is a story which leads up to 16 people, according to the text, Brahmins, priests, you could say, who come and uh, find the Buddha out and ask him questions. So the, and then that leads on to the middle section of the text, which is the main part of the text, which is a series of question and answers between these 16 people and the Buddha. And then there's, a, there's, there's another section called the epilogue. Um, so in the first week, I spoke about the first section, the prologue. Last, well, two weeks ago, I spoke about this middle section, and I'm going to carry on talking about the middle section this evening, and then next week I'll talk about the last section. So what I said was in the, this middle section, the question and answers with the Buddha, although just over 40 questions are asked, and they're of all kinds of questions really, um, the Buddha's answers tend to be quite similar. And I've picked out two main themes of the Buddha's answers. And last week we looked at the, the the first of these main themes. And that was uh, under the title, Drop Everything. So basically what the Buddha said to almost, well, lots of the questions, his answer was, drop it, basically. Um, drop your attachments, drop sensual desires. Um, I suppose the main theme last week in a word was renunciation. And... Um, Summarising, you could say um, the whole thing last week, the whole tenor of last week's talk was summarised in this answer to a question. There is, in taking things, a thirst, a clinging, a grasping. You must lose it. You must lose it altogether, above, below, around and within. It makes no difference what it is you are grasping at. When a man grasps, Mara stands beside him. Mara being <coughs> a kind of anti-god in a way. Mara is the evil one, sometimes called. Probably better to say mischievous one, the one who tries to trip you up and make the spiritual life difficult for you, or even impossible. If he could make it possible, he'd be a very happy little god. Um, but also Mara st stands for death. And one of the themes, another kind of sub-theme of the, the whole text is how can we go beyond death or old age and death? And we'll be looking at that this evening. So that was last week's theme. And that's why the talk was called Drop Everything because that's basically what the Buddha said, lose it all. I've recently thought I could have called last week's talk, talk Lose It I think I'd have preferred that now, actually, lose it. And this week's talk could have been called, but there is nothing to lose. Well, actually, I've called it, there is nothing to drop. 
And so that there is nothing to drop encapsulates the other main theme of um, the Buddha's answers. So that's what we're looking at this week. So everything I discussed last week, this first main theme of drop everything, lose everything, renunciation, have nothing. There's a whole sort of strong theme of possessionlessness in uh, the text. Um, This theme is actually common to many religions, many spiritual traditions. And it certainly would have been known to the people the Buddha was talking to, whoever they were. They would have been really familiar with this idea of renunciation and give everything away and have nothing. The way to happiness is to have nothing. They would have been very familiar with this. Um, In the first talk, I I questioned whether these 16 questioners were actually Brahmins or not, but it doesn't really matter. Because if you look at the the traditions, the spiritual traditions in India at the Buddha's time, they all had a strong theme of renunciation and giving up. There were many, many teachers and followers of those teachers in India at that time who were homeless wanderers. The Buddha was one, um, but there were many, many of them. So the Buddha would have, as it were, been speaking to the converted, you could say, whatever their tradition was, whether they were Brahmins or Buddhists or whatever they were. Um, and in fact, um, it's, it's common to Brahminism. So if these 16 followers were Brahmins, they would have been very familiar with it. Do you remember in the first week, those of you who were here, the story of Bhavari, the Brahmin, And uh, in the very first line, it says he was desiring the complete absence of possessions. That was his goal, the complete absence of possessions. And in fact, not only the traditions of India at the Buddha's time um, taught renunciation, uh, lots of spiritual traditions teach renunciation. It's a very common theme. But this week... We get this with this other main theme. We're going to start looking at those things that the Buddha said in this text, which are particular and specific to the Buddha, which probably only the Buddha was saying at that time in India. Um, in a way, we're going to look at those things which make the Buddhist tradition, particularly the Buddhist tradition, and which set it apart from most other of the world's religions. So these teachings, the, one we're going to look, the ones we're going to look at today, uh, you could say they're the metaphysical or the philosophical underpinning, yeah, underpinnings to everything the Buddha said last two weeks ago. No, well, two and a half thousand years ago he said it. But uh, everything I said that the Buddha said two weeks ago uh, about renunciation. Um, you might have asked last week, nobody asked this question, but how does it work? Why... The, the Buddha said that if you renounce everything, you'll be free and you'll be happy. And you could have asked, but how does that work then? Because it seems to me that when I get something, when I buy something new or when I move into a new place, that makes me really happy. So how would it work to have nothing, to give everything away? How would that make me happy? What's the mechanism? So... Um, This evening, I'm going to talk about the kind of underpinning of this idea of giving everything up. How come it leads to happiness? 
Why does possessionlessness lead to happiness? And I said last week that the, the teachings I'm going to be talking about this week are startling. Now, they're startling if you've never come across Buddhism before, but if you've been around for a while and you've heard some Buddhist teachings and you've read a bit, and especially if you've been around for a few years, these teachings actually won't be startling to you because you'd have heard them before. Um, but what I find exciting about this text, and I've been a Buddhist for over 30 years, so they weren't particularly new to me, but I still got very excited when I read it. And I still get excited when I read it because this is such an early text. This is perhaps, it's possibly the earliest Buddhist text we have. And the whole tenor of it is different from the later text. It feels different. The language is different. And as I said before, in the first week, I think, the Buddha, it's almost as if he's just gained enlightenment and he's trying to explain to people what it's like to be, enlightenment, to be enlightened. And he hasn't got a system yet. He hasn't worked out a way of talking about that. He hasn't worked out a system, systematized, graduated path. You know, nowadays, you go down to the bookshop down there and you pick up loads of books and they've got paths. The Eightfold Path and you know, the, the Thirty-Sevenfold Path. And there are even book, uh, Tibetan texts which have 52 steps to them. And it's all worked out. But there's nothing like that in this text. It's all very raw and unrefined and unworked out. And uh, when you consider that this may be the earliest Buddhist text, and here's the Buddha talking about something that no one, as far as we know, has ever spoken about before. It's a startling, new, fresh, exciting insight into life two and a half thousand years old now so it's no longer so exciting and fresh and so on but when you read this text it is just like as if he's just said it um, I'm a lover of classical music and I'll listen to William Byrd and Mozart and uh, just trying to think of my other current favourite uh, he's gone out of my mind now doesn't matter and when you listen to Mozart, I didn't like Mozart for many, many years because he just sounded so predictable. You know, I've heard that music so many times. But um, when you start listening to some of the other composers of around that time, you begin to realise how brilliant Mozart was because he did new things with that form of music, startling new things. And it's no longer new to us because everyone else has done it. Everyone else has copied him. But when you listen to the music of that time, you realise, wow, he was the first one to have done that. And it's like that when I read this text. I think, God, how did he do it? How did he make that leap from, you might say, conventional religiosity and you know, the, un the, the understood way of looking at things to something completely new? Anyway... This might actually be startling to some of you because some of you might be fairly new to Buddhism, I don't know. Sometimes, because it's a kind of a very old text, and the language is quite raw and unrefined, sometimes it's a bit hard to understand exactly what the Buddha's saying, and I find that in itself <coughs> exciting. Um, the translators, they don't kind of let on that they don't really know what the Buddha's saying, so they try and make it look as if it is, but... Sometimes it doesn't really make much sense in English. You sort of think, what is he saying? So 
So, what I like to do when I read this text is think, if this was the only text left from this person that we now call the Buddha, what would we make of him? What would we make of this teaching? Would we be able to make much sense of it at all? And is it only because we know what the later text said that we can read into these older texts what he's, he was trying to say? Anyway, here we go. Without further ado, um, we're going to look at something that the Buddha said in response to a man called, or a woman, we don't know if there are men or women, called Punyaka. Page 120. We're going to slowly wind in to the startling teaching. We're not going to begin with that one. So Punyaka says, I have come to ask a question of the one without desire. Now, this translation doesn't make this clear, but there's a nice little irony here in the other two translations I've got. They say, um, I desire to ask a question of the one without desire. So there's this man who's full of desire for the truth, asking someone who has no desire at all. It is this. Why is it that the wise men in the world, the Brahmins, the rulers and others, have always offered sacrifices to the gods. So I don't know if you remember, those of you who were here in the first week, this is one of the things that happened. Bhavari, the Brahmin, uh, gave a sacrifice. He was, he was given a lot of dana, things, by the local village, and uh, he gave them all away in a sort of ritual offering, a sacrifice. And he was probably sacrificing to gain merit for the gods. So uh, this man, Punyaka, or this woman, is asking, why do people do that? What happens? You know, what, wh how does that work? And the Buddha says, these men were always making offerings to gods because as they grew older, they wanted to preserve their lives as they were. So these people were offering sacrifices to the gods, placating them, praising them, praying to them. Because of the problem of old age, and of course with the problem of old age, a bit later on, comes death. So um, essentially what the Buddha is saying is that kind of spiritual life, when you're offering things up to the gods, when you're praying to the gods, so that you can carry on in your life, is essentially it's a worldly ambition. It's not really spiritual what these people want is more of the same. It's almost like, in this case, the spiritual life is a way of keeping oneself intact. Um, nowadays, we offer up our sacrifices to other things, don't we? To keep from getting old. Uh, the local gym. How many people in the local gym? Um, health food shops. Cosmetic counters. And plastic surgeons. So instead of offering to the gods, oh, please keep me young and keep me going forever and ever, which is what we all want, isn't it, really? Um, we know that the gods aren't going to do it now, so we, we offer our sacrifices to other things. So the Buddha wasn't interested in this. He wasn't interested in a spiritual life which was about carrying on and on and on and on. The Buddha taught something completely different, and it's 
almost mysterious, as we'll find out as the evening goes on. We'll find out what the Buddha was interested in and teaching is actually quite mysterious, very subtle. So I'll carry on with this question and answer with Punyika. But Master, said Punyika, did they ever get beyond old age and birth by making all these careful offerings? So here, this is interesting, not only old age but birth. So this harks back to the ancient Indian tradition of believing in rebirth, that with old age then came death, then came another birth. So the whole idea of the spiritual life was get to get beyond that round, that sort of circular thing of birth, get old, you die, and you're born again, over and over again. So the Buddha says, their prayers, their praises, their offerings and aspirations were all made on a possession of, uh, on a basis of possession, of reward. They longed for sensual pleasure. These men, these experts in offering, were delighting in the passion for becoming. These men could not go beyond getting old and being born. So their prayers, their praises, their offerings and so on were all made on the possession, on the basis of possession and reward. So basically what the Buddha is saying is they were living their spiritual life for themselves. They wanted something for themselves. They wanted a reward. So it's essentially egotistic. They wanted rewards for being good. And I suppose that's quite a common way of understanding the spiritual life, isn't it? If I'm good, if I'm ethical and if I meditate every day and give dharma to the centre and stuff like that, then I'll be a good person and I'll be rewarded somehow. There'll be a cosmic reward. Uh, Maybe I'll carry on looking a bit young and maybe I'll live for a bit longer and, you know, that'll be what happens. There was a book many, many years ago written, I think it's probably still in print actually and still fairly popular by Chogyam Trungpa, a Tibetan teacher called Spiritual Materialism, which is all about that. Spiritual materialism really says it all, doesn't it? That you're living the spiritual life for material gains. Uh, I think that's quite a common theme in, um, in some forms of Christianity as well, isn't it? Um, I think Puritanism might be based on that. I'm not quite sure of my facts here. I've been reading a couple of books recently that suggest that Puritanism has a kind of theme of if you're a good Christian, you'll be rewarded materially. You'll become wealthy and so on. Sorry if I've got that wrong, Puritans. There's another factor here in this uh, question and answer, which is that uh, they're making offerings and praising and praying to the gods. So they're asking for a force outside of themselves to reward them. So um, you could say that um, what's happening here is there's this kind of magic They're hoping that some external force is going to have an effect on their lives. So, you know, in in a way, a lot of um, religious life and religious understanding is is on the basis of magic. That if I placate these gods, these external beings, they will reward me in some way. So the Buddha, one of the things that the Buddha did in these teachings and also in later teachings is that he took the emphasis away from external powers, external gods. 
and he brought it back to you as an individual. The spiritual life is yours to, to practice. No one else is going to do it for you, not even gods and goddesses. And if you remember in the first week, there was uh, Bhavari, the Brahmin, um, a goddess appeared to him and told him about the Buddha. So it's like he went to the goddess for help and she said, well, I can't help you actually. You'll have to go to the Buddha who's actually a human being and he'll tell you how you can do it yourself. So the Buddha took it, uh, the spiritual life, away from these external powers, these external forces, right back to oneself. And specifically, it was back to your mind. And uh, the first words of the Dharmapada, famous Buddhist text, is, mind is the forerunner of all evil states. Mind is chief. Mind made are they. If one speaks or acts with a wicked mind, suffering follows one, even as the wheel follows the hoof of the draft ox. And then he says, mind is the forerunner of all good states. Mind is chief. Mind made are they. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows one, even as one shadow that never leaves. So basically what the Buddha is saying is, your happiness and your suffering doesn't depend on the gods. It depends on you and your mind states. And that's why uh, mindfulness is so important. Mindfulness is the skill or the ability to work with your own states of mind. And I said, said twice now, I think in the last few weeks, that when you look through this text, there are no real practices. The Buddha doesn't tell anyone to meditate or practice ethics or study the Dharma, nothing like that. His main teaching is let go, drop everything, lose everything. But he does mention mindfulness. Now I said last week he mentioned it 10 times. I counted it up all the times he said it. Actually, I found out today I made a mistake that um, I was just counting up all the English words mindfulness in the text. But today I was looking through it again and I saw that Sadatissa also uses the word awareness as a translation for sati, mindfulness. So there's loads, actually there's more. There's more than 10. He mentions it more than 10 times. So he says again and again and again, mindfulness. You just be mindful. So it's almost as if mindfulness and letting go are almost either they're done at the same time or they're synonymous. Um, to let go, you need to be mindful, constantly mindful. Okay, moving on. Carrying on with Punyaka's questions. You must explain this to me, Master. If all the offerings of the experts couldn't get them beyond ageing and birth, then who of all men, who of all gods, who's, has ever managed to get beyond, to go beyond? So beyond, this is the theme, isn't it? So the Buddha says, when a person has assessed the world from top to bottom, when there is nothing in the world that raises a flicker of agitation, when he has become a person free from the smoke fumes, the tremblings and the hunger of desire, he has become calm. He has gone beyond getting old. He has gone beyond being born. So let me just say a few words about this. He who has assessed the world from top to bottom. I don't quite know what the Pali 
the original Pali is for this word assess, but this, I think it's something to do with awareness. If you're, you're really aware of the world in every direction. And when there's nothing in the world that raises a flicker of agitation, agitation is a word that's used quite a lot in this text. Sometimes it's translated as perturbation. And it's a kind of turmoil. And you know the kind of turmoil we get into sometimes? Conflicts and um, even conflicts within ourselves. Oh, I want this, but I can't really afford it. Oh, what shall I do? Those kind of turmoils and agitations. When there's not even a flicker of agitation within you. Then he has become a person free from the smoke fumes. Smoke fumes of desire. This is good, this, isn't it? The folks, you can't see anything. You're in this smoke-filled room. You're so desirous, so craving after things that you can't really see anything anymore. Your sight is inhibited. The tremblings, this is lovely. The tremblings. Probably the, the, the original Pali is uh, Kampa, K-A-M-P-A. And it, it, literally it's tremble, you tremble. And it means to be in pain. You're trembling with pain. There's another beautiful word, anukampa, which means uh, anu is with. And uh, anukampa means compassion, to tremble with other people. So what the Buddha is saying is um, desire has with it tremblings, the tremblings of pain. And the hunger of desire. Desire is a state of hunger and hunger is a painful state. So, uh, then he's become a, free, a person free from the smoke fumes, the tremblings and the hunger of desire. He's become calm. He's gone beyond getting old. He's gone beyond being born. So what the Buddha is saying is, it doesn't matter about the gods and goddesses. They may or may not exist, but they can't help you. Only you can help yourself. And it's not magic. You don't have to perform some ceremony and then magically something happens. All you have to do is become aware. Really use your awareness. Look, just open your eyes and look at what's happening. And then, bit by bit, your agitation will drop away. You'll become calm. You'll desire less. And you'll become free. That's what the Buddha's saying. Okay. Somebody else asks, this one is Mogaraja. I think we might have had him before. Man of Shakya, he said, I have asked about this twice before without receiving an, uh, an answer from the wisdom eye. The wisdom eye is the Buddha. But I've heard that if a wisdom god, that's the Buddha again, is asked a third time, then he will give an answer. So this is really interesting. This man, Mogharaja, has already asked twice the question he's just about to answer. And the Buddha has not answered. So why is that? Well, uh, there is um, a tradition with the Buddha that uh, sometimes he doesn't answer a question. Um, and there are different reasons why he might not answer a question. But um, there's the case of Bahia, who was another religious homeless wanderer who travelled a long... He actually, it was a very similar story to Bhavari. Bahia was living on the coast of India and uh, he was well looked after by the villagers and they really respected him. And one day he sat down and thought, hmm, I wonder if I'm enlightened. 
and the goddess came and said, no, you're not. <laughs> so they do have their uses. And uh, he said, oh, okay. So is there anyone who is enlightened? And she said, yep, there's the Buddha. We had this two weeks ago, didn't we? The Buddha, he's fantastic. And uh, so he said, well, can I meet the Buddha? And she tells him where he is. So this, bar, this Bahia travels for days and days, perhaps weeks on end, hundreds of miles across India to meet the Buddha. And he eventually gets there. He's weary, he's probably hungry and thirsty. And there's the Buddha. And he goes up to the Buddha and he says, Buddha, and he, I can't remember the question he answers, but he, ask, he asks the question, Buddha, tell me this. And the Buddha didn't answer him. So he asks again, uh, can you tell me this? And the Buddha doesn't answer. So um, I'll tell you the reason why the Buddha doesn't answer. The Buddha doesn't answer because he's on his arms around, he's collecting food, he's begging. And it was the Buddha's sort of uh, tradition really to do only one thing at a time. So when he was begging, he didn't speak. That was a whole tradition. So Bahi didn't know that, so he asked the Buddha twice. And then he, asked, then he says, look, <coughs> I've come a long way and um, I could die at any time. You know, how, how, we don't know how long we're going to live, so can you answer my question? So the Buddha then answers his question. He gives him a pithy teaching and Bahia becomes enlightened on the spot. Fantastic. And then two hours later, he's killed by a bull. He's gored to death by a bull. So, <laughs> that's Bahia. But, you know, the reason the Buddha wasn't going to answer any questions then, because it's the wrong time to answer questions, he was doing something else. But that can't apply in this case, because the whole thing is this a question-answer session. So the Buddha's answering questions left, right and centre. So that can't be the reason. Must be the other reason then. So what's the other reason? The other reason is that sometimes somebody asks the Buddha a question and he knows the answer, but he won't give the answer because it will be just too much for them. It will be too upsetting, perhaps even traumatic. There are a number of instances where this happens in the text, so I'm just going to give you two instances. Um, they're both pretty similar, actually. It's, um, I can't remember their names, but these, these two um, religious people, they're not Buddhists, but one is called the bovine ascetic and the other is called the canine ascetic. And what happens is there must have been these traditions, all sorts of strange traditions in India at that time. And the bovine uh, ascetic, he used to walk around on all fours with cows and he used to moo like a cow. That was his practice. <laughs> Hence, he's a bovine ascetic. And um, the canine ascetic uh, walked around on all fours, but he was like a dog and he barked like a dog and he acted just like a dog. And when he came to see the Buddha, he curled himself up at the Buddha's feet just like a dog, just like a dog does. So they both came to see the Buddha and they both said, look, according to my tradition, if I act like a cow or like a dog, then if I do that for the rest of my life, in my next life, in my next rebirth, I'll be born amongst the gods, reborn amongst the gods. And is that true? And the Buddha didn't answer. So they asked again and the Buddha didn't answer. Then they asked again, so he goes. The Buddha said, no, <laughs> you won't be reborn amongst the gods. You, meaning the bovine ascetic, you'll be reborn as a cow. <laughs> and the canine ascetic, he said, you'll be reborn as a dog. It's kind of obvious really, isn't it? <laughs> but this was, they were very, very upset by this because they'd spent a long time practicing these things for the wrong reason. So here we are. 
Mogharaja says, look, I've asked this twice already, so I'm going to ask again. So why didn't the Buddha answer? Well, I think the Buddha didn't answer because what he is about to say would have really shocked the people listening to him. I mean, it was really quite a startling thing for the Buddha to say. So are you ready? Here's the question, first of all. I do not know, famous Gotama, what attitude you take towards this world and towards the other world, the world of Brahma and the gods. So, because of your insight into excellence, I have come to ask you about this. What is the best way for a person to regard the world so that the king of death won't see him? Do you get that? What's the best way to see the world, to understand the world, so that the king of death, Mara, can't see me? So here's his answer. If you are always aware, here we are again, if you're always aware, Margaraja, you will look at the world and see its emptiness. If you give up looking at yourself as a soul, then you will have given yourself a way to go beyond death. Look at the world like this, and the king of death will not see you. So, this is the teaching, and this is the teaching that we'll be looking at for the rest of the evening. If you're always aware, you'll look at the world and see its emptiness. If you give up looking at yourself as a soul, then you will have given yourself a way to go beyond death. So, this needs explaining, really. Um, I was reminded when I um, read that text of an old Bob Dylan song. I just want to make it clear I'm not a fan of Bob Dylan. But when you're young, you know, when you're a teenager, well, when I was young, 30-odd years ago, we used to listen to Bob Dylan. It kind of goes into your mind and it's stuck there forever then. But there was a song called um, Like a Rolling Stone. And uh, he sang this. When you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. When you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. He must have been reading the text, wasn't he? But he goes on to sing, you're invisible now. You've got no secrets to conceal. I found that really interesting because what this Mogharaja is after is a way that the king of death can't see him. He wants to become invisible to the king of death. Yeah. And what the Buddha is saying is, well, you see the world as empty. Or if you look at the world clearly, you'll see the world as empty. And also, if you don't see yourself as a soul. Now, a soul is a kind of essence. It's a kind of fixed and unchanging essence, which is somehow inside you and which never changes. I'll talk about that a bit more as we go on. So this idea um, wouldn't just have been startling to these people, if they were Brahmins, it would have been utterly shocking. Because Brahmins, their belief was, and still is, that there is in the world a kind of essence called Brahman. It kind of underlies everything. And what's more, there's, there's an essence in you called Atman. It's a kind of an essential property which goes on and on and on forever and ever, so that 
according to them, when you die, you'll get re-reborn. But the, the, this essential soul inside you, the Atman, is unchanging. It just goes on and on and on. And then he goes far as to say that actually the Atman which is inside you is Brahman. The Atman, the sort of essence of you, is the essence of the world. It's the essence of reality. And so we're all one. You must have heard that phrase. We are all one. That's based on this idea of Brahman and Atman. So there's this kind of underlying reality which we partake of. And this underlying reality is unchanging. It just goes on and on forever. Okay. So, whenever you come across a Buddhist text that says empty, as the Buddha just said, you have to ask the question, yeah, but empty of what? Because when people first come across this, sometimes there's this feeling of, oh, that doesn't sound very good to me. There's a kind of sense of disappointment. The Buddha's not saying empty of meaning. He's not saying that if you look at the world clearly with awareness, you'll see that the world is empty of meaning or empty of value. That's just nihilism, and the Buddha wasn't a nihilist. What he's saying is the world is empty of this essence, this kind of fixed, eternal reality. There is no such thing. There is just what you can see in front of you. So we're going to look at another one of these texts now where the Buddha goes into this in a bit more detail. Upasiva says, It is not possible for me to cross the massive ocean alone and without help. You are the eye that sees everything. Please tell me what I can use to help me across the ocean. The Buddha's answer. Use these two things to help you cross the ocean. The possession of nothingness and the awareness that there is nothing. Give up sense pleasures and be free from doubts so you will begin to see and to long for an end to craving. Now, the perception of nothing and the awareness that there is nothing. It's probably best to say no thing rather than nothing. That makes the meaning clearer. The perception of no thingness and the awareness that there is no thing. So, what does the Buddha mean by thing? A thing, you could say, is a conceptualization. It's an idea. Um, and we've got loads of those. The whole world is made up of conceptualizations and ideas. So, we're going to take one of these conceptualizations. Take your forefinger. If you just look at your forefinger, I hope you've all got one, <laughs> on one hand or the other. Okay, we've all got. And when I say forefinger, you know exactly what I mean, don't you? You always look. Everyone's looking at their forefinger. So let's just look at it for a while. What is it? What is this thing we call a finger? Well, it's made up of different elements, isn't it? There's the skin. You can feel the skin, see it. And there are the little hairs on the back of the finger. So it's skin and hairs. So there's the nail at the end of the finger. Just beneath the skin, there's flesh. And there are muscles, probably cartilages and sinews. Marsh Radders here, I'm careful what I say about what's inside a finger. I'll have to keep to what I actually know. 
bones. Hmm? Hmm? Nerves. Nerves. Good. Yep. Um, and then there are liquid things in there as well, aren't there? Blood, sweat. If you work your fingers very hard, they begin to sweat. There's water there, salt water, I suppose. And in the in the knuckles, there are probably um, other fluids. I don't know about bodily fluids. There's also warmth, isn't there? One's body is warm. The fingers warm. And uh, we can't see the warmth, but we can feel the warmth. And if you were to put your finger in a, in a box that measured temperature, it would be giving off radiating heat. So we think our finger finishes with the skin, but actually, in a sense, it goes a bit further than the skin, doesn't it? It sort of branches out, not branches out, it radiates out. So there's all these things that make up the finger. But... If, what is the finger apart from all these things? Yeah, if you were to take away the bone or the flesh or the skin, would there still be a finger? So the finger is made up of all these other things. In a sense, there's not really a finger. There's just blood, flesh, bone, etc., etc. And of course, you could go further and say, well, let's look at bone. What's a bone made of? And now I'd be completely out of my depth, but I'm sure it's made up of different things. And you could break it down and say, oh, actually, there's not really a bone there, is there? There's just a whole load of things stuck together. And imagine if someone cut your finger off, yeah? If you didn't have a forefinger, there'd still be an idea of a finger, wouldn't there? There'd be this kind of idea of a finger that should be there, but isn't, even though there was no finger there. And then this finger is attached to something else. It's an appendage of something, isn't it? Um, it's part of the hand. So here's another interesting question. Where does the finger actually begin? Could you draw a line and say this is finger and this is not finger? Is it just that side of the knuckle or is it that side of the knuckle? Which of this is the finger? Or is it arbitrary? So it's attached to the hand. So it's part of something bigger. And the hand is attached to something else, the lower arm. And the lower arm is attached to the elbow and so on and so on. Uh, there's a song about that, isn't there? Um, <laughs> so it's, everything's attached to something else. yeah. And so it's all part of this thing that we call the body. So there's another thing, a conceptualization, a body. But what's the body? It's made up of parts, isn't it? Hands, feet, legs, fingers, neck, teeth, head, chest. Loads and loads, hundreds, thousands of different things making up this body. Apart from all these bits and pieces that make up the body, could you say there's a body apart from those? Well, you couldn't really. So if you started taking apart a body, at some point it would be senseless to call it a body, wouldn't it? So where did the body go? Where was the body in the first place? I hope you're following this. I was thinking this through this afternoon. I could follow it at the time. But then the body's part of something else too, isn't it? When we conceive of a thing, we conceive of it as being somehow separated off from everything else, like the finger. We think of a finger, and it's almost like in our mind, there's a finger. But actually, the finger doesn't exist on its own, can't exist on its own. And the body's the same. The body can't exist on its own. It needs a world 
to be part of. So if there was no oxygen, there, there could be no body. If there was no sunshine, there could be no body. If there's no water, there could be no body. No gravity, there could be no body. So the body is actually a part of the whole thing. So the body, even the body, isn't a separate thing. And then let's start thinking about the self. We often think of the body as being the self, don't we? You know, I'm me, meaning this body, this body's me, the shape of me, the size of me, this is what makes up me. But if there's no such thing as the body, if that's simply a conceptualization of our experience, it's just made up of bits and pieces. If it's part of something bigger, then where's the self? What is the self? Well, then you might say, oh, well, the way I think of myself is it's my mind, actually. It's not my body. It's my mind. That's what's really myself. So we better have a look at the mind, wouldn't we? So what we think of as the self is also a conceptualization. It's as if we tell ourselves a story about ourselves. We've got this constant story going on about who we are and what we are. So in my case, the story I wake up with and tell myself all day to keep myself going is I'm tall, six foot, male, grey hair, middle-aged, Buddhist, good speaker, not very computer literate, director of a company called Breathworks, likes time to myself, and so on and so on. This is who I think I am. But like the finger, whereas all these things are sort of true, it's true that I'm a Buddhist and that I'm middle-aged and so on, um, it's not the whole truth. It doesn't really encapsulate who I am, can't encapsulate who I am. In fact, these ideas, this story that I tell myself, actually limits me. It's as, as if I'm constructing myself as I go along all the time. And anyway, these ideas change over time. I didn't used to be middle-aged, I can assure you. I used to be young. I didn't used to be grey. I had wonderful blonde hair when I was young. I didn't used to be tall. You know, when I was a child, I was this size and this size. I didn't used to be a Buddhist. I didn't used to be a good speaker. So where's myself then? Who am I if I wasn't those things once and I am now? Was I not myself when I wasn't tall? What's happening? Who is the self? What's the self? So, okay, the self is changing then. It's a changing self. So, but is there an unchanging self behind all these changing ideas of who we are? Well, there does seem to be an aspect of our self-experience which is kind of unchanging. When you were young, I don't know if you can remember, what's your first you know, memory of yourself? I remember one of my first memories was on my fifth birthday. And I remember it was all mad, you know. I was having a party and it was all crazy. Things happening all over the place. And I went to the toilet and it was quiet in the toilet. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, this is me first sort of dawnings of self-consciousness this is me and I think back to that and I think well it's exactly the same experience I have now when I think this is me it's almost like inside I'm the same person watching myself get older 
And it's always a surprise to me when I look in the mirror, I think, hey, who the hell's that? How could that have happened? What happened to my hair? What happened to all this? Hey, this isn't me. And I think what it is, is that your, what you might call the witness of your experience, your awareness of your experience, your self-consciousness, feels the same throughout the whole of your life. And so you often just feel young, even though you're, I mean, I still feel the same as I did when I was 18. Doesn't seem to make any difference. So I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute. We're going to do a little experiment here. And just be aware of sounds. That's all. Just be aware of sounds. Be aware of your body and it's the sensations in the body. Sensations of perhaps discomfort, comfort, coolness, warmth. weight of your body on your bottom and so on. Be aware of how you're feeling at the moment. Be aware of the thoughts that are occurring to you as we do this exercise. And just maintain awareness of all those things. So now I want you to ask yourself a question. Where is the self that's experiencing all these different things? Where does it reside? And what does it look like? Does it have a colour? A shape? A texture? What is this self that's aware of oneself? Okay, that's the end of that little thought exercise. Now, I think it's probably true to say that most religions think of this self, this witnessing awareness of one's life, as somehow being one's soul, an essence. But according to the Buddha, it wasn't. The Buddha said, it's not a thing. Awareness is not a thing. It's not an essence. It's not a soul. It's simply awareness. So when the Buddha says, there is no self, he doesn't mean that you don't really exist. This is all a figment of somebody else's imagination. You don't really exist in reality. He's not saying that. He means that you don't exist in the way that you often think that you exist. He means that you don't exist in the way that you conceptualise your experience. He's not denying your experience of having a self. He's saying that you simply misinterpret that experience. You have an experience and you misinterpret it into being a thing. According to the Buddha, there is no soul underlying your experience. There's no fixed and unchanging and eternal essence, which is you. Okay. Shall we go on? Uh, where were we? So Upasiva then carries on and he says, When a man is free from attachment to all pleasures, 
and depends on no thingness and everything else he lets go, is he freed in the supreme freedom from perception? No, he is freed from the, in the supreme freedom from perception. But will he permanently be there and not return again? I don't really know what he means by freedom from perception. The translators don't really help. They all say more or less the same thing, freedom from perception. I don't really know what that means. It, it might mean perception of things. It mean, might mean more like conceptualization, but I don't really know. The Buddha answers, when a man is free from all sense pleasures and depends on no thingness, he is free in the supreme freedom for, from perception. He will stay there and not return again. So once you've understood that there are no things, you can't be fooled again by things. You realise that actually there are no actual, you know, all the conceptualizations we have about the way things are. They don't really fit. They kind of fit. But maybe I should say that these conceptualizations are very, very useful. I wouldn't be able to speak to you now without conceptualizations. We wouldn't even be able to have that exercise looking at the finger. So they're very, very good for communication and practical purposes. But the trouble is we take them literally. We think of these conceptualizations as being reality, and they're not. They're just descriptions of something which is beyond words. So once you've seen that, that's it. You've seen it, and you can't go back to the way you've seen it before. Upasiva carries on. If this man stays many years in this state without returning will be cooled and freed there itself, say whether consciousness will still exist for such a person. Now, this is a bit difficult, but basically what he seems to be saying is, if you die, you know, once you've understood this, once you become enlightened and you die with this knowledge, will you carry on? Will your consciousness in some way carry on? I say that because he uses this word cooled, will be cooled. And... Um, Another translator says, when he goes cold, meaning when you die. So, the Buddha says, it is like a flame struck by a sudden gust of wind. In a flash, it's gone out and nothing more can be known about it. It's the same with a wise man freed from mental existence. In a flash he has gone out and nothing more can be known about him. This is actually a famous text. It's discussed a lot in the Buddhist world. So I'm going to talk about this a bit. Basically what Upasiva's asked is, look, once you gain enlightenment and you, you no longer think there are things out there, so you no longer grasp anything. When you die, what happens to your consciousness? Do you carry on? And the Buddha says it's like a flame. You've got fire and then a gust of wind blows it out. So what happens to the fire? Now, you need a bit of background to understand this. The ancient Indians thought that fire was an ever-present force. They even had a god of fire, Agni. So when there was no physical fire here, in this, let's say in this uh, room, when there's no physical fire, it still exists in some sense in a latent form. Fire still exists even when there isn't any fire. And it's almost as if the fire that you can't see is hiding somewhere in the molecules of the universe. And when you light a fire, 
you bring it, or the god Agni, you bring it alive in this world, you bring it back to this world. In the meantime, it's been hiding somewhere else, but when you light a fire. So the whole time, fire is existing in some way. When the fire goes out, it hides again somewhere, but it still exists. So that's an interesting bit of background. The Buddha thought of fire very differently than this. And he used the metaphor of fire for craving, hatred, passion and ignorance. Fire burns, it's painful. It's not free because it's dependent upon fuel. You can't have fire without fuel, so it can't exist on its own, it's dependent. And it's bound to the fuel. It can't sort of exist somewhere else. It's sort of bound. It clings on. It clings to the fuel. And it's never still. It's agitated. It's always moving around. So for this reason, and others probably, he used fire as a kind of symbol for um, craving, attachment, passion, and so on. And interestingly, this word nibbana, you probably know it more uh, it's popularly more known as nirvana, the Sanskrit word nirvana. But in Pali, it's nibbana, um, which is a synonym for enlightenment. It actually literally means blown out or extinguished. So it's as if with enlightenment, all your craving, all your passion and so on is blown out, it's extinguished. So Upasiva is asking whether at death an enlightened being carries on eternally. So in that sense, he's saying, is nibbana eternal life? So that's the way the Indians thought of it. Now, us modern-day Westerners, we think of fire rather differently. We think that once the fire's gone out, that's it, it's gone. There's no fire. Simple. Therefore, it's very easy to think of Nibbana blowing out, extinction, as somehow you've gone. You've completely disappeared from the world. You no longer exist. But the Buddha, his answer's very interesting. He says, this fire... In a flash, it's gone out, and nothing more can be known about it. So he doesn't say, well, when the fire's gone out, that's it, there's no fire left. And he also doesn't say, when the fire's gone out, it's hiding somewhere, it's still around somewhere. He says, nothing more can be known about it. All you know, it's not here anymore. Where has the fire gone? Does it still exist in some way or not? Nothing more can be known about it. It's a mystery. Where does fire go when it goes out? Pfft, who knows? And he's saying it's the same with an enlightened being. When, the, when someone's enlightened, they're no longer clinging to the world and so on. When they die, we don't know what happens. We don't know what happens. All our categories, in fact, the Buddha says this. Upasiva then asks another question. Please explain this clearly to me, sir. You, a wise man, know precisely the way things work. Has the man disappeared? Does he simply not exist anymore? Or is he in some state of perpetual well-being? It's like a heaven. And the, the, the Buddha says, when a, when a person has gone out when they're enlightened, then there's nothing by which you can measure him. That by which he can be talked about is no longer there for him. You cannot say that he does not exist. When all ways of being, all phenomena are removed, then all ways of description have also been removed. What this means is you can't conceptualise an enlightened being. You can't 
encapsulate an enlightened being within a concept. An enlightened being is completely gone beyond concepts, gone beyond things completely. Is this difficult? You following? Okay, one more. Kappa. You'll have to tell me it's difficult because I really love this kind of stuff. And Sir, he said, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being and death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to fa- find an island. Tell me where there's solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. So this is another very strong theme. Um, the terror and the fear and the rush of the river of being, this idea of water taking you and, you know, you suffering. Tell me where to find an island, solid ground, beyond the reach of all this pain. So, the Buddha says, there is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It's as far as you can go. It is a place of no-thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It's the total end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nibbana. So. So this island, this solid ground, is a place of no thingness, non-possession and non-attachment. It's a place of safety. I find this really interesting because usually when we're after a place of safety, when we're after a refuge, which we cling on to things, don't we? We cling on to ideas, really, ideas of safety and permanence, um, careers and pensions and houses and all these things which will help us. But actually the Buddha's saying, nah, actually they don't help you. And we know that's true, don't we? You can have a pension and then somebody like Robert Maxwell comes along and you haven't got a pension anymore. (laughs) You have a house and... um, there's a natural disaster and you haven't got a house anymore. You come home and it's not there anymore. It does happen to people, doesn't it? So these things aren't really 100% safe. The place of safety can only be reached by realising that in reality there are no things. It's just an idea that there are things. There aren't any things really. There's just no thing. What that means on the positive side, I think, is that Life is a flow of energy. And if we try to grasp it and try to make it into a thing, it constantly eludes us. Have you had that experience? Trying to, oh, this is great, isn't it? Let's make it last forever. And, you know, a few hours later, it's gone. Okay, a couple more. Nanda. Page one, two, four. Right, this is very interesting. How are we doing for time? Hmm. Do you think I should stop? Nearly half past eight. I could do the rest in two weeks, in next week, couldn't I? Let's have a show of hands. Who wants me to carry on? <laughs> I better carry on. <laughs> Many people, he said, talk of wise men who they say are living in the world. What do you think about this? When they call someone wise, are they talking about his knowledge or about the way he lives? Good question, Nanda. That's a good question, isn't it? What makes someone wise? Is it their knowledge? Is it what they know? 
or is it the way they live? The Buddha says, and this I found very surprising, to the experts, the word wise has nothing to do with the way a person sees things or with what he has been taught or with what he understands. To me, Nanda, a wise man who is one who has disarmed, who lives in seclusion without the tremble or the hunger of desire. This was a real surprise to me when I read it because hasn't all the other... In, in the rest of the text, the Buddha's saying knowledge, isn't he? Isn't he talking about wisdom? And here he's saying, no, that's not important. It's the way you live that's important. Phew. Um, so then I thought, well, maybe what he's talking about is knowledge is important, but anyone can seem wise, can't they? Anyone can be clever and come out with a bunch of words which sound good. What's really important is the way the person lives. If you're with someone for a while and you see that they're constantly not grasping and so on, then you can infer that they're wise. But if they just talk about non-grasping all the time and then think, oh, the cake, I love that, then maybe they're not so wise. But I'm not sure if that's what he does say, really. It's a difficult text, this. So then there's another question. Then, Master, said Nanda, there's another question I must ask you. All religious teachers and Brahmins have talked about the way to be pure. So this is an Indian way of understanding wisdom, purity. Some have said that purity comes from world views and from teachings. Some have said it comes from good deeds and religious rituals. Others have said it comes from other things. What would you say, sir, that these men living in this world who taught these things have gone beyond birth and ageing? Would you say, sir, that these men have gone beyond birth and ageing? So what he's saying is all these people, religious teachers, they say that purity comes from views and teachings, understandings, teachings, um, good deeds and religious practices. So what do you say? Is, is that what happens? The Buddha says, I would say this about religious leaders who teach that views and teachings, deeds and rituals or anything else will make you pure. I would say that these men living in this, in this world have not gone beyond birth and ageing. So what the Buddha is saying, that anybody who teaches anything, you know, views, teachings, anybody who teaches practices and precepts and good deeds, they haven't gone beyond. Phew. But Master, said Nanda, these men who teach that purity comes... Oh, now before we go on to this bit, I remember now, I was going to say something else about that. So the Buddha seems to be saying, actually, there's no path. No good deeds, nothing you learn about, no practices, no rituals will make you pure. Well, what else is there if you have a path? What else can there be than these things? These are the things which make up a path, aren't they? Make up a religion. And the Buddha's saying, no. Okay, so we're going to slip to another text here. It's chapter four, which I haven't had time to look at, but it's, um, it's as old as the one we're looking at. So it'd be a what I've tried not to do is go to later texts and read them into this old text. But this is an old text. The Buddha says, I do not say one attains purification, again, wisdom, 
I view, tradition, knowledge, virtue or ritual. Saying the same thing, isn't he? But then he says, nor is it, nor is it attained without view, tradition, knowledge, virtue or ritual. So it's not attained with them and it's not attained without them. Where does that leave you, eh? What can you do with that? Now, <coughs> I said a few weeks ago that um, some of these translators, they read into these old texts, later teachings, and that's exactly what Sadatis has done here. He's a good Buddhist monk, and he knows his Dharma, he knows it. <coughs> and he hasn't actually translated the next bit, he's rendered it. He's put something in which isn't there. It is only taking these factors as the means and not grasping them as ends in themselves that one so attains and consequently does not crave for recoming. So what he's saying is, the Buddha says, view, tradition, knowledge, virtual, ritual, you can't attain purification through these things, which is, in other words, through the spiritual life. But then he says, but nor can you attain it outside of these things. And what Sadatissa says is what he really means is that you ha do have to practice these things, but you we have to be careful not to grasp them. But that's actually not what the Buddha said. So what can we make of this? To be honest, I'm not really quite sure what we can make of it. Um, it's almost as if the Buddha is saying even the idea of a path leading to purification, leading to insight, to wisdom, has to be dropped. Because even the idea of a path is a conceptualization, isn't it? So if we see it as a thing, I think this really touches the number of it. If we see the path as some kind of thing that we're hanging on to, then it becomes not a path anymore. I think that's what he's saying. It's interesting, in later Buddhist literature, um, the Buddha talks about the four Upadis. Do you remember the, four, the Upadi from two weeks ago? Upadi was attachment. And there are four kinds of upadi. Uh, there's attachment to sensual pleasure, to views, even good Buddhist views, attachment to precepts and practices, and there's attachment to the idea of a separate and unchanging self. So these are the four attachments. So <coughs> what the Buddha seems to be saying here before he's even dreamed up this list is... Whatever you get attached to, that will hold you back. Even if you're attached to yourself as living the spiritual life, that will hold you back. And in, again, in later Buddhist literature, you find this idea of there are two kinds of Buddhists. There's someone who's on the path, and there's someone who's no longer on the path. In other words, they're enlightened, so they're not on the path anymore. So perhaps the Buddha is talking to a bunch of very advanced beings who no longer need a path anymore. Or perhaps he isn't. And I suspect he isn't actually. I suspect that he began his career talking in these very uncompromising terms about the spiritual life. There's no path, folks. There is no way to gain enlightenment. Just don't get attached to anything at all. And don't make your spiritual life into another thing that you have to carry around with you like a suitcase oh, I'm living my spiritual life with this burden on my back. Because if you do that, you're going to get nowhere. That seems to be what the Buddha's saying. The spiritual life is not about hanging on, 
clinging on to things. It's about freedom. One last short text. Just to finish off, really. In every direction, Ajita asks, the rivers of desire are running. How can we dam them and what will hold them back? What can we use to to close the floodgates? Ah, let me give you the answer, I suppose. The answer. Any river can be stopped with the dam of mindfulness. Coming back to mindfulness, just awareness. I call it the flood stopper. And with wisdom, you can close the floodgates. So here we are again, back to mindfulness and wisdom. Mindfulness is a dam, and wisdom actually closes the floodgates. I was thinking a bit about um, freedom. And what the Buddha's saying is that uh, mindfulness restrains. It restrains desire. That's what mindfulness actually does. But actually what the Buddha's really after is freedom. So there's this kind of paradox, isn't there? That the Buddhists, Buddhists, we say, in order to become free, you have to restrain yourself. So how does that work? So I've been thinking a bit about this, and I, come up, I came up with an idea which probably someone else has come up with. You know, every new idea you come up with, a couple of years later you read it in a book, don't you? Someone else came up before you. But the idea was the sense of two kinds of freedom. There's horizontal freedom and there's vertical freedom. And horizontal freedom is that sense where you can you just f- do what you feel like. Oh, I think I'll go out to a pub now. Off you go. Oh, I think I'll leave the pub and I'll go home and I'll watch the telly. And you just do whatever you like when it occurs to you. That's a certain kind of freedom. But that kind of freedom doesn't really lead anywhere. You just stay on the same level all the time. It's horizontal. There's another kind of freedom which the Buddha was really interested in, which is what I call vertical freedom. It's a kind of freedom of depth. And you get to that freedom by restraining yourself, by not letting yourself do whatever you want whenever you feel like it. There's a certain amount of restraint that leads to complete freedom eventually. So mindfulness, you could say, helps you with restraint and wisdom helps you with complete freedom. Wisdom is knowledge. So in a sense, knowledge is important, isn't it? Wisdom is important. I mean, the Buddha said earlier that the way you live is more important than knowledge and what you've learned. But actually, maybe you could say there are different kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom that you hear from other people. Then there's the wisdom of actually seeing things as they are. Surely that is really important. And here, the wisdom is the wisdom of going beyond conceptualizations, going beyond things, seeing the world in terms of things going beyond that, going beyond seeing things in terms of essence. When you see that, then it's easy to drop things. Because you see that in reality, there is nothing to drop. And dropping things through wisdom helps you to see that there are actually, in the end, no things to drop. So it helps you to loosen your grip on things. Now, I can't resist... One last thing from my current favourite book, How to Be Free. 
but I'm not going to be quoting uh, Tom Hodgkinson. He quotes a very interesting person who I'd never heard of before, a free mystic spirit called Henry Suso from Cologne. So I suppose it's Henri, isn't it? Henri Suso. Lived in 1330, about 1800 years after the Buddha. And he wrote an account of a conversation he had one Sunday afternoon with a bodiless image. And I think we could call this bodiless image wisdom. Suso says, whence have you come? The image says, I have come from nowhere. Suso, tell me, what are you? Image, I am not. Suso, what do you wish? Image, I do not wish. Suso, this is a miracle. Tell me, what is your name? Image, I am called Nameless Wildness. Suso, where does your insight lead you to? Image, into untrammeled freedom. Suso, tell me, what do you call untrammeled freedom? Image, when a man lives according to all his caprices, without distinguishing between God and himself and without looking before or after. Now, in a way, it's a pity he brought God in, but he would be because he was a Christian mystic. Of course he would bring God in. But what does he mean? What is untrammeled freedom? When a man lives according to all his caprices. Now, a caprice is a whim, isn't it? It's something you just follow. It's that kind of horizontal freedom that I was talking to about. But the image is wisdom and when you've got wisdom you can do whatever you want there's no need to restrain yourself because you're not fooled by anything so we ignorant beings that we are we need to restrain ourselves there's something over there I want it someone with wisdom would see well why do you want that there's nothing actually there there's nothing for you to grasp so at first you need to restrain yourself but once you really understand the way things are, you're completely and utterly free. So there is nothing to drop. 